Uh, as a preacher, I'm always looking for good sermon illustrations. You know, sometimes you find those in movies or you know, uh, events that take place in the news. And then sometimes life just hands you a great illustration on a silver platter. And that happened to me just a couple of weeks ago when our dog got sick. Our dog is named Bailey. Bailey, she turns four this month. She's a young dog, but she got sick. She started acting very strangely a couple of weekends ago, standing off by herself, looking very confused, looking kind of like me. Um, her heart was racing. It was clear that something was wrong. And uh, we were worried that she might have had a stroke or that something, some, some kind of internal organ was failing her. And so it was a Saturday night, about 9 o'clock. We finally break down and call the Urgevet down the street and, uh, and ask if we can come in. So I take her to the Urgevet for some emergency care, and they go back and examine her while I'm sitting in the, the other room. Finally, the vet comes in to give me the news. He sits down in front of me, and he just goes into it. He's talking really, really fast. And I'm just locked in. I'm trying to take in every single thing he says. I'm so worried. Well, thankfully, he says it's just a back injury. Uh, it's going to heal up just fine in a week or two. But as the vet's talking, I notice he's wearing some kind of scarf around his neck, which I thought was a little bit odd for mid-September indoors. Um, so I don't really pay it any mind because I'm trying to listen very intently to what he's saying. And then the scarf moved. And y'all, it was a monkey. There was, there was a real live baby monkey sitting on this guy's shoulder, hugging him around the neck. And it was wearing a little diaper. And that adorable little monkey just kept looking at me as I'm trying, you know, and, and to his credit, the vet never even acknowledged it. He didn't ask me if I wanted to pet the monkey, didn't introduce the monkey. He just kept on right on talking about Bailey and her back and her medicines and, and her treatment. And so, I, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to keep eye contact, not with the monkey, with, with the vet, you know, the best I can. Then the guy gets up, monkey gets up, they leave. That was the end. Um, it struck me in that moment how, how much we treat our pets like our children. If you're a pet lover, man, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's not just true for the vet and this baby monkey. It's true for me, too, because Bailey comes trotting in after her exam. We're sitting here thinking she's about to die. She's okay. She comes in. I get down on the floor, and I get close to her ears, and I said, oh, you're just our precious little baby. I'm so sorry you hurt your little back. You're just the sweetest little thing in the world. Yeah, no, that's, that's weird behavior, I know, but I don't care because she is our precious little baby. She's our puppy dog. Now, okay, all that is to say, our pets are not our children, okay? No matter how sweetly we treat them, they, they're not in the same category. Of course not. They don't possess the same value. They don't carry the same nature of a relationship. How could they? Pets are not the same as children, and I realize I'm painting a silly picture with all this, but I, I want to bring up, uh, hopefully, a much deeper and more important question. How is it that you consider um, the nature of your relationship with God? What are you to God, and what is God to you? I think a lot of us operate kind of like this. Well, God takes care of me, and he sees to my happiness. He meets my needs. And hey, I'm loyal, you know, I'm, I consider myself a good Christian, but really that's about as deep as the relationship goes. Y'all, I just described a pet. 
And I want to tell you up front that that God has no desire for that kind of relationship where he simply takes care of you in exchange for your loyalty, where God sees to my happiness as long as I'm a good boy. That's not the relationship God created us for. And I'd say this on the flip side of that, some of us, as we think about God and how we relate to him, we see ourselves more in, in kind of a negative sense, more like a servant or even a slave. That, yeah, you know, God, God allows me in, but not too close. God kind of tolerates me as long as I keep up the good work, as long as I am obedient and faithful, then God at least allows me in at arm's length. Well, y'all, what we're going to see today in Galatians 4 is an entirely different paradigm. God, in his grace, actually makes us his dear children. When we turn to Jesus in faith, we're not just kind of allowed in through the back door. When we come to Christ, we receive more than just the forgiveness of sins, as as necessary and wonderful as that is. The Bible says we receive adoption into the very family of God. And that's a gift more wonderful than I think we can imagine. And so I want us to see this morning how the Apostle Paul frames this and the necessity of this. We need to really believe this, not just personally, but we need to believe it theologically. It needs to inform what we understand the Christian life to be. So we're going to draw a little bit on some of the things we've seen already in Galatians, especially in chapter 3. But uh, let's begin in, in Galatians 4, verse 1, and see how Paul lays this out for us. In verse 1, Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, Paul is actually drawing on an idea here that all of his readers would have been familiar with. This is how ancient families functioned. That typically in a household, you had a family, of course, but you also had servants, family and servants, who both made up the household. The servants lived there in the home. But it was the eldest child, or the eldest son especially, who was set to receive the family inheritance and the estate but only after he had come of age. And that was an age that differed according to the culture. The Jews had a different idea than the Romans did, perhaps. But there was a date set by the father, whether it be 12, 13, 14, whatever years old, where the child would enter into adulthood and receive the estate and become a manager, as it were. So in the meantime, while the child was still a child, well, he had no wealth of his own. He had no authority. He could make no decisions. And in that sense, Paul says he's really no different than the servants than the slaves in the home. And Paul goes on to say, this is what we all once were like. All of us were children under the rule and the bondage of the elemental things of the world. And it's important to understand that Paul, when he uses that term we, he's speaking of both Jews and Gentiles here, the same being true of both parties, both groups. The Jews who were God's chosen nation who possessed the law, the pagan Gentiles who did not. They did not grow up with the Bible or the Ten Commandments. They were, in a sense, very far from God, religious outsiders. And yet, Paul says, we all shared the same bondage, the same problem, the same spiritual 
slavery. Now, on its own right, what we just read might be a little confusing, okay? So let me give us a brief rundown of the first three chapters of Galatians. This will take about 45 seconds, but it's important for us to see what the letter has taught us so far, okay? There was a problem in the churches of Galatia. Paul had preached the gospel to them, and they had received the gospel. They received Jesus Christ by faith with great joy, but then Paul leaves to go preach elsewhere, and false teachers sneak in behind him, as they often did, preaching a different message. And what they were saying to the churches of Galatia was, your faith in Jesus is actually insufficient to save you. It's not enough. Because you're Gentiles. You're religious outsiders. And therefore, your faith in Jesus is not enough to really set you right with God. You have to also become like us Jews. You have to enter in through the same door that we did. You must be circumcised. You must keep the laws of the Old Testament. You must adopt the Jewish calendar of our feasts and festivals and religious activities because the Jews are the special and chosen people of God. We are the sons of Abraham, they would say. We are the true inheritors of all of God's old promises. And therefore, you cannot be accepted by God unless you conform to our religious life and practice. That was the message, and the Galatians were eating that up. That made sense to them. And so the Apostle Paul urgently writes this letter, and y'all, he's already spent three chapters now just obliterating that false teaching. He is showing it up for its, for its, uh, for its uh, bankruptcy. Paul has already told us that nobody is justified by the works of the law. That's the central message of this whole letter. Nobody is set right with God on the basis of religious law-keeping or religious activity or religious pedigree. A person is saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Evan showed us last week at the very last verse of chapter 3, I'm going to show it to us again, because Paul summarizes this so well. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you, Gentiles, are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, you are sons of Abraham. You don't have to become Jews in order to get that designation. You are heirs according to God's promise. Because you belong to Christ, not because of any other uh, activity that you engage in or door that you enter in through. And so this is Paul's point now in the first couple of verses of chapter 4. God made a promise. A promise for the world, not just for one people group. It's a promise of salvation by grace, not by works. But there was a time when all of us were outside of that promise. We were in bondage. The Jews were in bondage to the law because they were unable to keep it. The Gentiles were in bondage to their own forms of law and religion, what Paul calls the elemental things of the world, things that could not save them. The promise had been made, but God had not yet brought that promise to fruition. And therefore, all of us were stuck. Jew and Gentile both, we were without hope in the world. But, and y'all, the Apostle Paul, he uses that word but so wonderfully in pretty much every letter. But, verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 was actually a promise that God made before the ages ever began. Titus 1 tells us that. God had in his heart, before he ever made the world, that in the fullness of the time, at the time of God's perfect choosing, he was going to send forth his son. Sending forth implies mission, purpose. He sends forth his son, Jesus, at the exact right time in history. And Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman. See, that expresses to us his full humanity. That Jesus was not a hovering spirit that, you know, kind of stayed detached from ugly, sinful humanity. There were some teachings in the early church that held to that. Jesus surely wouldn't become like us. He wouldn't embrace all that we are. God would never do that. No, God did do that. He was born of a woman. Hebrews tells us that Jesus became as we are in all respects. He was a real man. And Paul says he was born under the law, which means Jesus was born an Israelite. He was born a Jew. But y'all, it's deeper than that. It's, that's an expression of solidarity with us. For Jesus to be born under the law means that Jesus entered right in to our human predicament. He came all the way down up under the law just as his brethren did, just as the people did. That Jesus didn't excuse himself from our present reality and the requirements of righteousness. No, he came up under the same law that we couldn't keep, the only difference being that as God's son, Jesus did keep it. And so the bondage in which we were held never applied to him. He never sinned. Jesus, in his own words, actually fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all righteousness both for himself and for us. Which is why, Paul says, Jesus now redeems those who were under the law. There is, it would not do us much good at all for Jesus to simply come and show us how it's done. If Jesus were perfect in his own right and fulfilled the law, man, how wonderful. What an example that we could never follow. And so it would serve, at best, a limited good and really eternally no good for us at all because we couldn't be saved by a good example. He had to redeem us. And Paul says that's what he's done. And so, y'all, we saw this. If, if you remember back in chapter 3, or you can go read it again for yourself, we sinners stand under the curse of the law. The curse because we could not um, keep the law. The law, rather than the law... Um, saving us by making us perfect, the law actually just reveals our imperfection, our sin, and brings us under sin's penalty. So it's a curse to us, the scripture says. But Jesus on the cross became a curse for us. That's chapter 3. He became a curse for us. Y'all, that means that the perfect law keeper took on himself the penalty for all of us lawbreakers. The law keeper took the penalty for the lawbreakers for the purpose of redeeming us, meaning he has bought us out of our bondage. Jesus Christ has paid the full price of our freedom from slavery at the cost of his own life. He didn't just fulfill the law for the sake of example. He fulfilled the law for the sake of our righteousness. We are redeemed. We are saved because of him. 
Now, this is a message we preach every single week without fail, without apology. So you've heard this before if you've been with us before. But I, let me just, let's hone in on this for just a minute, okay? And try to maybe bring it down to eye level for us. Y'all, Paul has just told us that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, are in bondage, enslaved. Now, from the, think about from the Jewish perspective, right? Clearly, the Gentiles are in bondage. That would have been easy for them to see. The Gentiles, who were born into pagan society, they didn't have the law like the Jews did, and therefore they were considered unclean people. They were worshipers of idols. They were morally filthy when compared to the good and upright Jewish people. Clearly, the Gentiles are in bondage. That's easy to see. But the great shock of the gospel, the great shock of Paul's letters here, is that Paul says it's not just the Gentile problem. It's a human problem. The Jews are also in bondage. In spite of the fact that the Jews had what would seem like an inside track, they knew God, they had God's word, they worshiped in God's temple, they made the sacrifices, they paid the tithes, they did all the stuff, and yet they were enslaved. Because no amount of their pursuit of the law or of human goodness or religious activity could possibly save them. And that's the whole message of the gospel, that whether you consider yourself an insider or an outsider, a good person or a very bad person, we're all on the level ground together, both enslaved to sin and both in need of redemption. And so y'all just, at, at eye level here, you and me, okay, you may consider yourself at least a pretty good person. And I try really hard to be a good person. And because you think of yourself as a pretty good person, you may feel like there's a sense of entitlement to God's acceptance. Or at least at some level, God is in my debt because look at all the good I've done. Look at all the good intentions I carry around, even in the things I fail in. At least I was sincere. At least I meant well. And so we think of ourselves, a lot of us, as pretty good people to begin with. But here's the problem for you and for me. If we actually took a moment, and it wouldn't take long, to measure ourselves against the law of God, what God, what God actually says, so go to, go to Exodus 20 and read the Ten Commandments. Or better yet, go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and read the Sermon on the Mount. And measure your sense of your own goodness against what the Bible says, what Jesus says. And what you and I discover is we're not good. Not even close. I'm actually way off the mark. Because I've been, I've been measuring myself against my own standards or against other people, and I can always find somebody worse than me. But the law of God leaves no wiggle room. I'm not good. I need a redemption. You need a redemption that only comes from outside of us. Only Jesus can give it. And the good news for us good people is that Jesus has done it. He's loved us and given himself up for us. The good people who realize they're actually bad are not hopeless because Jesus Christ has come to save even the self-righteous. Now, on the other side of that coin... You may be more akin to like the Gentiles would have been viewed. You may see yourself as just, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm unworthy. I don't even need to open the book to tell me so. I know it. And I know maybe I'm far from God. And y'all, maybe so. But you are not irredeemable. No matter what you think or what's been said about you, what you've done or what's been done to you, you are not irredeemable. God in his grace offers redemption for anyone who turns to Jesus Christ in faith. Anyone. Jesus' blood shed on the cross 
is rich enough to pay for any and every sin. To give you life, to make you free. His blood is rich enough, powerful enough, gracious enough to wash you clean, to save anyone. Y'all, that's what it means to be redeemed. All of us need it. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether good or bad, whatever categories we might produce for ourselves, there's one category in God's eyes. Sinners who are redeemed by grace. Now, y'all, that, all, that by itself, that right there, that's good preaching, man. Not because I said it, because that's just what the Bible says, okay? Anybody could say it, and we could fold up right now and go to lunch. But we're not going to, because Paul's not done. And y'all, the, the, as much as, as the redemption ought to thrill our hearts and change everything about us, that's not all. It's the best news ever, but there's more. Look at the end of verse 5. The redemption has a purpose too. That we might receive the adoption as sons. See, when God saves you, he brings you all the way in to the deepest level of relationship and belonging. The scripture says that by faith in Christ, you become a beloved son. And y'all, that's, that's more powerful, I think, than we dare to imagine. The truth about us, and I don't have to know you, I know this is true, the Bible says so. All of us are made in the image of God, and that's good news. From the get-go, no matter where you're born, no matter what family or culture you're born into, no matter how good or bad you turn out to be, every single human being bears the image of God, and, and, and he loves us. That's good news. But at the same time, the Scripture tells us, we are also alien to God. He loves us. We bear his image. He made us, and yet we don't know him. And in Romans 5 is a great resource for this truth. Romans 5, Paul tells us we're actually enemies of God. We become his enemies through our own chosen sin and rebellion, with the outcome being that the definition that Paul gives us in that chapter is we are ungodly. And that is a powerful and depressing word. Ungodly. That's us. But the good news of the gospel is that God, rather than destroying all of his enemies, sends his own son forth to redeem them. And even more, what's more than that, he doesn't just exonerate us from our sin and send us back out into the world. He takes his former enemies and makes us his children. He brings us into the home and makes us his own. He adopts us, those who were once alien and far away God brings near and calls us to himself. Y'all, that is an amazing thing. It would be more than enough for God to simply wink at your sin, forgive you, and leave you alone. That news wouldn't be very good, honestly. We might take it, better than nothing. But no, what we have instead, we have adoption. And y'all, you may have caught on to this. As, as Paul is, is laying this out for us, he keeps talking about adoption as sons. Even though it's clear that he's talking about both male and female Christians, why doesn't Paul say sons and daughters? Is this just one of those old-timey things, you know, well, the Bible was written a long time ago. It wasn't very gender-inclusive back then. No, there's actually a good reason for this. In the ancient world, it was the firstborn son, in every culture, the firstborn son 
who received control of the estate. It was the son who was given the lion's share of the inheritance. The son was esteemed and entrusted with carrying on the family name. That's just the way it went. Right or wrong, that's the way it was. And now look at what Paul's saying, because this is not supposed to be something that confuses us. It's actually something that's supposed to greatly comfort us, to be celebrated. In Christ, Paul says, we are all adopted sons of God. That's not a statement of gender. That's a statement of inheritance. Meaning every single one of us enjoys all the wealth of God's promised inheritance. All of the esteem and glory of his name. Nobody gets God's leftovers. Think about the shock that would have sent through the ancient world a patriarchal society across the board that both male and female are one in Christ. All are sons as it regards the inheritance. Y'all, that's mind-blowing. What an offensive thing for most people, men especially, who were given the priority. No, in Christ you are all equals. You are all fellow heirs of the grace of life. Y'all, I want to say this without, without any compromise. All of us, whether male or female, whether rich or poor, black or white, all of us, receive the same sonship and inheritance by faith in Christ. There is no varsity in JV. There is no, in a sense, there are no sons and daughters, as it were, where one receives the inheritance and the other gets married. And that's the best you can hope for. No. In Christ, you are all sons. You are all wealthy beyond imagination. You are all recipients of God's riches. Now, that, here's a question for us as we consider this. If you and I really believe this, maybe you do, but a lot of us, we just don't, or we find it hard to really grasp and take down deep. But if we really believe this, how would it change our perception of God and of our relationship with God? How would it change your way of relating to the Lord? Because it has to, right? And Paul, in fact, Paul goes ahead and answers this question for us as to how it ought to change us. We see that in verse 6, the last two verses we'll see today. Paul says, because you are sons, matter of fact, because it is so, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all present there in verse 6. The triune God is doing something beyond our categories, something we wouldn't believe unless it was written down and unless it was present in our own life and experience. That the Father, God, has sent His own Son into the world on a mission to redeem us that we might be adopted by the Father as His sons and now given His Spirit to indwell us. Y'all, we'll, we'll spend, I'll spend the rest of my life, God willing, trying to unpack what I just said for us. That is endlessly deep. The Father sent His Son to redeem us that we might be adopted as sons and the Spirit might be given to indwell us. And when God's Spirit comes to those who trust in Christ, the Spirit actually brings something new out of us. We see it? We now, by the Spirit, cry out, Abba, Father. 
And Paul delights to keep the language um, confusing here for us. He doesn't translate Abba for us because that is the name that Jesus used when he spoke to the Father throughout his own life and ministry. When Jesus addressed God the Father, this is the exact kind of language he used. It's the most intimate way for a child to speak to his dad around the dinner table or in the living room or being tucked in at night to bed. It's not the formal language of the the tabernacle or the temple. It's not the formal language of the marketplace. It's the personal, intimate, affection kind of language that is shared between children and their parents only in the home where the father holds and embraces his child and his child speaks back, Abba, Father. Y'all, this is the kind of of father-son relationship God chose to give us. Remember, I said it earlier, nobody twisted his arm for this. Nobody put this in, in heaven's suggestion box. It sure would be great if you would adopt us as your children. This was God's idea, and the promise was made before he created the world that God would bring us this close. And we see this is unearned on our part. This is undeserved on our part. And frankly, it's a little bit unbelievable for us that God would take his enemies and adopt them as his sons. No longer a slave, but a child. And God is so committed to this relationship, not just to make it so, but that we would feel it and live it that God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Y'all, one of the great works of the spirit, we see this in Romans 8, we see it uh, in, in 1 John. We know we are children of God. How? Well, the Bible says so. But there's an inner witness, the scripture says. The very spirit of God in us tells it to us all the time. You are God's son. You are his child. You are adopted. He loves you. The Spirit of God shows us continually what Christ has done for us and what the outcome now is. And so, y'all, I just want to pose this as a rhetorical question. For those of us who struggle to think of God as close and near and kind and loving, if God has sent forth his Son to redeem you, if God has adopted you as his Son, if God has made his own very spirit to indwell you, what does that tell you about how close he wants to be to you? Any false notion that God wouldn't dare come too close to a sinner like me, any false notion that God tolerates my existence, that's the only reason I'm alive, All of this was his doing, his choice, his promise to make us his children. He wants to be close to you. It's his delight. It's the reason he made you. And so, y'all, I realize how silly it sounds, but I want to remind us again, we are not God's pets. Pets hang out under the table hoping for scraps. Pets understand the relationship that he cares about me as long as I'm loyal as long as I'm a good boy or a good girl. That sounds nice, maybe, <laughs> but that is not why God made you. And neither are we his slaves, his servants in the truest sense, that we would work for his approval, but we always keep a respectful distance. God 
tolerates me, but he doesn't really love me. Y'all, I hope we know better. I hope we see better. That we are sons by faith. We are seated at the table. We are recipients guaranteed of the Father's riches and His grace. We are loved so supremely that God would not only bring us in, but He would swear by His own nature never to cast us out. You can't lose this. God made a promise never to forsake you. And so I want to ask us again, if we really believe this, really deep down, would it change the way we think of God? Would it change the way we approach Him? If you and I really believed this, would it increase the frequency of our prayers and our thanksgiving? Would it make us more confident in God's promises, less fearful of the future? Would it make us more joyfully obedient to His Word? How could it not? How could it not? To see the law by Christ fulfilled to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a son and duty into choice. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask this morning for all of us Lord, on one hand, we can recognize, as Bonnie prayed earlier, we can recognize the depth of our sin. And we don't have to run and hide from it. We don't have to to excuse ourselves or justify ourselves. Um, We can simply just confess. We know we are unworthy. We know that because of our sin, Lord, we have... We have put ourselves at enmity with you. We've made ourselves your enemies. Lord, you did nothing to create that enmity. Lord, that's all on us. And yet, Lord, at the same time, you did everything to destroy that enmity, to break down the wall. Lord, you sent forth your Son to redeem those under the law to redeem those, Lord, in bondage. And I I pray, Father, for us this morning that we would just gladly embrace what you have decided to do, what you stepped forward to do. Without you You didn't wait for us to make it halfway. You came for us, Lord, while we were at our worst. And you made your enemies into your children. Lord, you turned slaves into sons. Entirely of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that we will receive this adoption. That we will receive Christ today. Lord, thank you that you, have, you continue to drill this in deeply to our hearts. I pray week after week, day after day, we cannot earn this. We never could, we never will, and we don't have to. Your grace comes to us as a gift. And Lord, I pray also that in receiving grace and coming to Christ and 
receiving the adoption as sons, Lord, that we would be, that we'd operate as sons, that we'd live as children. That, Lord, we obey as obedient children. And therefore, we obey from the heart. We love you and we walk with Jesus Christ. We, we imitate him. We, we follow him. We keep his word, Lord, um, because we don't have to earn what we already have. We simply receive and now walk by the Spirit, by faith. And so, Lord, I pray, make us more obedient because of this adoption. Make us more serious, more committed and devoted because of this adoption. It has come for free. And at the same time, Lord, it, it requires all of us. We are now new. We're different. We are your children. I pray, Lord, let us, let us act like we really believe it so that we might uh, show off to the world the grace, the power, the goodness, the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Lord, if there's anyone listening, anyone in this room who has not received Christ for forgiveness and for adoption, then, then may you work, Lord, um, uh, to shine the light of Jesus into their heart that they might receive him and be saved. Thank you, Father, for such grace. Let it be our theme both now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.